Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I want to thank Lucy Billingsley, who was unable to be here tonight, but her company and Lucy and her daughter, Lucy Page Billingsley, are uh, generous sponsors of the 2010 Global Connections series. Steve, we we formulated this series of of, of programs, about four or five each year, to really focus on some issues that are of not necessarily the typical foreign policy that people may think about, but issues that are are, are keen concern around the world, such as uh, gender equality, human rights, water, and and, and so forth. I want to thank our friends at the Rosewood Crescent Hotel as well. They're a strategic supporter of the council. Thanks for that terrific uh, introduction, and thank all of you for for coming out this evening. uh, to contemplate that little, the, the, the precious clear liquid that we carry around with us so, uh, so, so uh, tenaciously each day in that, uh, in that bottle and wonder what would, what would happen if we didn't have enough of it or as much of it as we wanted for all the things that we use it for. And before the end of tonight, I, I hope you'll appreciate that we really use it for in large quantities for just about everything. Um, The subject tonight uh, is the greatest crisis that most Americans have never heard of, or not yet anyway, and that's global freshwater scarcity. And in fact, I do argue uh, in this this book that uh, water is overtaking oil as man's most critical um, natural resource. And uh, as an analogy uh, to the 20th century, when oil transformed the history of, of the 20th century and the uh, shape the geopolitics, the economics, the environmental issues. Uh, so too, fresh water today is transforming our uh, world. And in fact, it's even more, even more so because it's truly indispensable. You can't grow, uh, you can't drink oil, and you can't grow food with it, but only water. What's basically happening, in essence, is that under the duress of rising population demands. Uh, and the voracious demands of our industrial society for water, uh, that we've been using water at a rate two times faster than our population growth, which, as most of you know, has grown, uh, has quadrupled in the 20th century to over 6 billion people. Um, And very often, uh, very important also to keep in mind uh, in this regard that we have very widespread inefficient uses of water uh, as well, is that more and more nations are now outstripping our available, replenishable supply of fresh water. And by that, I mean, and this is an important definition, the amount of water that there is a, there is a, a tiny, finite amount of water that um, continually self-renews our, our water resources through the uh, natural process of the water cycle of, of uh, evaporation and precipitation. It refills our rivers, our lakes, and our shallow groundwater. And that's all that finite amount of water has been all the water that has been available and has sustained every civilization in world history until today. Today we're outstripping that amount, and we're using more than that by going in to pumping groundwater beyond replenishable levels uh, and, and a few other uh, techniques we're trying. Uh, 
Today, our ecosystems are being, in fact, depleted, and we are starting to run dry for many of our key human and economic uses from agriculture and industry uh, and energy production. Uh, in fact, uh, given the current practices and technologies, which I again uh, emphasize are very inefficient, uh, more and more parts of the world, there is simply not enough uh, in the ecosystems for the 6.5 billion that we are, and, the nine, and certainly not for the 9 billion that we will be by 2050. Uh, and many of those people are also important to keep in mind becoming meat eaters. Now, the meat-eating diet is far more water-intensive than a vegetarian diet uh, by a multiple of uh, maybe a factor of four to five. Uh, so that will continually to increase uh, our demands on water. Um, and I was going to quote Ben Franklin, as a matter of fact, <laughs> at this point, um, about that famous quote about the well being dry when we learn, that's when we learn the worth of water. Because, in effect, what's happening is the global well is starting to go dry, and we are beginning to appreciate uh, the worth of, uh, worth of water. Uh, if you come away with nothing else uh, from tonight's uh, talk, I hope to make you see, that, um, see water in a way you've not seen it quite before, uh, both physically and as a vital uh, element of our, of our ec a vital economic good, a critical element of their geopolitics and our national interests. And to, to do so, I'd like to start off with a little quiz. I'd like to ask each one of you to think to yourself and ask how much water do you think you personally consume each day? Personally and consume being the underlying words. All right. Nobody wants to make a first guess. Everybody make a guess? Go ahead. 100 gallons. All right, 100 gallons. Any other, any other, any other bids? <laughs> okay. Um, the answer actually is going to be 1,000 gallons a day because it's not just the amount that we drink, which is only, you know, necessary a, few, a couple of gallons, um, but it's also, for example, all the water that goes into, into making the food that we, that we consume. Uh, for example, a, one slice of bread um, has a, uses 11 gallons of water to produce. A, a pound of wheat is 125 gallons. That's one ton of water because water weighs eight and a third pounds. It weighs actually per gallon, actually more than 20% uh, more than oil, by the way. Um, rice is actually more water intensive, uh, maybe two to three times more. But it's really when you move up into eating animals, uh, animal products, that we really get into the heavy-duty water uh, intensivity. For example, a hamburger takes 634 gallons uh, to, to produce, that is, you've got to feed the cattle, right? And the cattle have to drink. It's five, that's five tons of water. Um, but that's not really all the water that we use each day because we wear clothes, right? And clothes, um, a shirt on your back, a cotton shirt, 750 gallons just for the cotton T-shirt. And you get to jeans and uh, you get 3,000 gallons and shoes, 2,000 gallons. If, just, if, you, if you count your underwear and your socks, I, I calculate you're about 25 tons worth of water, 6,000 gallons that, we're, that, we're, you, that, we're, that have gone into that, that we're just wearing each day. Now, that's, of course, not all, because we all know that we use water at home for a variety of things like uh, cleaning, um, uh, cooking. Um, uh, some, some people water the lawn quite a bit, and Americans use about 100 to 150 gallons, depending where we are. Europeans use about half of that amount um, uh, each day. And in poor countries, I went to Kenya, as, as mentioned, uh, to uh, help lay water pipes for waterless villages at, at one point. Uh, if they have uh, three to four uh, gallons a day, uh, which is maybe two to three toilet flushes for us, 
uh, that's the amount that they have for all of their, uh, their uses. Now, most of you probably have computers, um, and that little semiconductor chip that's in that computer, that is um, also uh, takes a lot of water to make, of ultra-pure water for that matter, about 2,000 gallons to make one little chip, so that a, a, a typical semiconductor plant uses enough water for, the, for, a, for a city of 50,000 people. Uh, and then and it moves on and on through industry. I mean, chem, every industry, chemicals, uh, paper, steel, food processing, mining. Uh, you just put it together in an automobile, and you got about almost 40,000 gallons of water, about 162,000 tons of water. Um, and then I guess the, the other question is, what industry do you think uses the most water in the United States in most industrial countries? That's a good guess. Actually, it's not agriculture, which is close second and is the most in most of the world, but it is energy, production of energy. Thermo, we, mostly we use it for cooling thermoelectric plants. Um, so, so what you end up with is that you find that, um, in fact, we use water. Water is fairly invisible to us because it's hidden maybe in plain view or sometimes under, under, under the pipes and systems that we have. But the, the, the use of and, ma and management of this water, which is also requires vast amounts of energy to move around because it's so heavy, uh, is critical to our, uh, our productivity, our economic life, and um, our, our, our way of living. And in fact, um, when I did this book, which is two-thirds of world history of the role of water in world history... Uh, and about one-third about the current scarcity crisis, it became quite evident that water has always been the most indispensable resource, uh, and any prosperous civilization has had to manage that water resource uh, in, a, in, a, in a productive manner to be, to be, pros to be prosperous. Um, I'd really like to start, though, the exploration of this uh, topic with a going into depth into one country that I'm particularly uh, focused on at the moment, uh, because it's one of the front lines of the water crisis. Um, and, it's, and, it, and I think by going through it, you'll begin to see some of the levels of foreign internet, from the foreign, pro, foreign policy problems that we are beginning to face because of water. And that is the condition of Pakistan. Um, you, you know that uh, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, made a, a rather a pub, well-publicized visit there in October of '09. Um, and behind that, while she was traveling around, uh, all the, all the, uh, the Pakistani, Pakistani leaders were, were telling her that we have this terrible water crisis uh, that, that is uh, uh, impending and is, and is threatening our ability to produce food in the future. And, our, and they could see that the energy was not being produced in, in large enough amounts because very often the energy is the, the lights are turned off uh, for, for 12 hours a day in that country. Uh, that's partly a function of uh, hydropower or lack of cooling uh, water. Um, but that's only the beginning of their problems, um, which um, they have a, a, an enormous conventional problem of having to resurrect a, um, uh, an irrigation system that, is, that has all, all but uh, become obsolete. Uh, they have enormous population pressures, which is driving it, of course. And since about the 1970s, what they started to do um, was to uh, pump uh, groundwater. Uh, at a very large uh, levels, but now that groundwater to, to irrigate for their food, and but now they're finding uh, that their uh, groundwater tables are also beginning to give out and bringing up poorer quality uh, water, and they're facing now a total crisis of salinization of soils, of waterlogging of soils, um, and a frankly a governing infrastructure that uh, is non-existent uh, for for how to solve some of those problems, and that's only the but that's only the beginning because. 
they are completely reliant on the Indus River, which is almost like, if you imagine the way you know the way the Nile is so critical to, um, to Egypt, well, the Indus is equally critical to, uh, to Pakistan. Uh, but the glacier, 50% of the water in that river comes from the glaciers in the Himalayas. And those are starting to melt, have been melting at a very rapid rate, particularly in the uh, western Himalayas, uh, which is where uh, the Indus uh, rises. Um, and as we're looking forward over the next 15 to 20 years, as their population increases by about a third, they are facing a situation both where they, they see, there'll be seasonal changes in their water flows uh, so that the dry season, they may lose 30% of the water that they need in the dry season um, uh, and may lose absolute water uh, uh, levels as well from the, from the climate change. Uh, so they face rising population, probably diminishing uh, flows, certainly diminishing seasonal flows in critical times. And yet, um, and that's also a worsening of tensions within the country, which, as you know, is a very fractious country, despite the, the in, on top of the fact they've got the Taliban and, 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 the, and the, um, Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda there, they've also got big rivalries to hold together the Sindhs in the, in, from the south and the Punjabis in the north and, and, and some of the folks in the uh, western provinces. And they are very suspicious that the Punjabis are not diverting more of the water as the water runs short uh, because the Punjabis are well-connected and rich and their water goes through Punjab before it goes through, uh, reaches the south. Now, that, that river that I was talking about, uh, the Indus, is already so badly overdrawn that it no longer reaches the delta, which has begun to dry up, and there's an invasion of water from the, um, uh, salt water from the sea. This is not uncommon. There are 70 rivers around the world where that is, is happening. It's a, it's, a, it's a global problem. It's happening on the Colorado River in this country. It's happening on the Yellow River and uh, a bunch of others. Um, <clears throat> But the real scary thing is even gets scarier still because when the water from the Indus uh, actually passes from these glacier areas, it actually passes through um, uh, the Kashmir that is now occupied by India. And um, there, they, as you know, they fought wars uh, several uh, in the number of last number of years, uh, and India has now begun to build hydropower dams on the, some of those uh, tributaries that feed that Indus uh, River. This is, they have a treaty. It's been ruled to be not in violation of the treaty, but now India is going to build many of these uh, hydropower dams, up to a score of them. And what Pakistan fears and what those who have been long-term observers of this say is a justified fear is that, that India will have the ability uh, not only to dictate the timing of the filling of those uh, of those hydropower dams, which will affect the amount of water that goes down t to uh, Pakistan, perhaps when they need it during the planting season, but if there is a conflict between them, the ability to divert and block uh, a certain amount of water downstream to to Pakistan. Uh, and now Pakistan um, is also afraid because um, the, India has been also giving aid to Afghanistan. And the Kabul River, which needs to be developed for, for Afghanistan purposes, provides 20% of the water of the Indus. So they see themselves as being surrounded by, by India with having the control of the spigots, the water spigots, into their, into their vital lifeline when, in, when the Americans finally leave this region. Um, and on top of that, Pakistan has only 30 days storage on the Indus River. Uh, and that means that you know, one bad month and they are out of water. 
And India could certainly give, could accelerate the, that, that problem if, uh, if and when nature doesn't do it uh, uh, for them. So uh, the situation is quite explosive. And there, at the recent summit meeting of the two uh, heads of state, uh, the uh, Pakistanis com- continually raised the issue of water, which the uh, Indians thought was not to be on the agenda because they were supposed to be discussing the Mumbai, getting past that Mumbai terrorist attack that came from um, uh, from a Pakistani group. The uh, press in Pakistan has been calling India, saying India has been practicing water terrorism against it. And, um, and the group that actually carried out the Mumbai bombing has said that the, has threatened that uh, if, Pakistan, if India doesn't desist, uh, then Pakistanis will sate their thirst on the, the blood of Indians. And they certainly have the means to carry out uh, at least part of that threat. So it's an explosive part of the world and, um, and, and very scary. The, the good news uh, and and and, in, and to India's uh, for India's uh, purpose, let, let's let's make it clear they have their own problems that are quite severe. They too are running out of um, uh, pumping uh, groundwater at, at an unsustainable rate, and will become a food importing country uh, rather soon. Uh, they will be going from an exporting nation probably to an importing one uh, rather quickly. Um, and they have electricity shortages of their own, particular, and they've deregulated their industry, and it's one of those uh, forces that is also encouraging them to develop the hydropower up on those rivers. Um, now, <clears throat> the United States um, uh, has tried to address Pakistan's uh, concerns, and we obviously see this as a major uh, 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 danger point uh, for our, our national security interests. And I, and I must say, there is one bit of encouraging news in this, is that probably, most of you probably didn't notice, because it didn't get the, quite the press attention, but back in March, uh, Hillary Clinton gave a speech in which she announced that a new policy that the State Department has, been, has adopted with, with, for the last number of months uh, to uh, elevate the problem of water scarcity into the highest levels of our foreign policy um, making. Uh, and in fact, um, is recognizing Pakistan, I think, as, as one of the, uh, the frontline cases in which they're trying to do that. Now, we passed a package of giving $7.5 billion of aid to Pakistan not too long ago. The largest portion of that and the most urgent portion is focused on irrigation, uh, storage, and uh, energy and hydropower. Um, I would want to just say to let you know that Hillary, from Hillary Clinton on down at the State Department, they do seem to get it that um, about water, about the unfolding crisis of uh, emerging as really one of the key fulcrums of, of geopolitics and, and, and economic development and public health and global security. Um, in her speech, uh, Hillary Clinton called water, mentioned that both of our wars, the outcome both of our wars, Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, will hinge uh, partly on how we manage and those countries manage uh, their water uh, problems, which are quite severe, and cold water both a matter of national security integral to the success of many of our foreign policy initiatives. And she said it also, though, it's very interesting, represents one of the great diplomatic and development opportunities of our time. It's not every day that you find an issue where effective diplomacy and development will allow you to save millions of lives, feed the hungry, empower women, advance our national security interests, protect the environment, and demonstrate to billions of people that the United States cares, cares about you and your welfare. Water is that issue. Um, and, and in fact, um, 
Water does touch on all those issues. We can't, we're not going to be able to touch on all of those tonight, um, uh, but maybe we'll get to some of them, more of them in the question and answer period. But the important thing is that she does understand that water is creating a new calculus of strategic challenges for policymakers. So I'm going to propose a sequel to her book when she leaves office. Uh, it takes a village, but a village needs water. <laughs> um, now, one of, one of the um, new part, parts of the calculus there, of course, is uh, the climate change uh, issues. Water, you should, when you think of climate change, uh, cl climate change is the water crisis in hyperdrive. Um, it, it, it wreaks its damage by exacerbating uh, things that, that are part of the water crisis. It, it leads to more unpredictable, out-of-season floods, uh, extreme floods, droughts, melting glaciers, of course. And what it does is it overwhelms the water infrastructures that we have built up over these many years and make them either wrong-sized or, or completely inadequate, washes them away in the case of the really water-poor people of this world. Um, and many of the mitigation efforts of, to climate change are really the same as, as water. People are beginning to get this in, in Washington. Uh, they've been slow because uh, they've been doing wargaming on, on, on climate change issues, not realizing, oh, duh, almost everything operates through water uh, issues. <laughs> They're starting to get it. But they also know, the insiders really understand that, that water is also inextricably linked with producing and using energy because our energy water, since the water wheel was invented 2,000 years ago, our water infrastructures and our energy infrastructures have grown more and more uh, interdependent, whether it's water treatment plants or cooling uh, 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 thermoelectric plants producing new forms of energy like uh, carbon, carbon sequestration is very water intensive, uh, for example. So when we think of foreign policy going forward, you think of water, food, energy are really, uh, with the um, under the umbrella of climate change, are really interlinked um, like a game of uh, three-dimensional chess or a rubric cube, because the change of one uh, will affect the whole matrix of the others. Um, there are two the global freshwater scarcity crisis presents us with two great challenges. Uh, one is an environmental problem, and the other is a political uh, one. Uh, the environmental crisis uh, really is that we've used water for four purposes in, throughout world history, which we continually have to use it for, for domestic purposes like, eat, like drinking and, and cleaning, et cetera, for producing energy, uh, for economic reasons, uh, and for... for, um, for uh, agriculture and industry, and for, for transportation uh, and, for, and, for, and for, for military uh, naval purposes. Today, there's a fifth use that we have to take into consideration, and, it's, and, the people that, and whoever comes up with this will be one of the water winners of the 21st century, and that is you've got to have enough water allocated to maintain the, the health of our, of our water ecosystems. Uh, the Millennium Economic Assessment, of two, which was published in 2005, which was really the, f the biggest inventory they ever taken of our water resources, pointed out that freshwater scarcity um, and freshwater ecosystems are probably the most depleted, uh, most seriously depleted, and are being uh, of all of our, our planetary ecosystems. And we're using water now at an unsustainable uh, rate. Um, to just to, to look at the quick inventory, I mentioned the 70 rivers, uh, major rivers that don't reach the sea anymore. We've also um, are now pumping groundwater in North China Plain, in uh, in India, Pakistan, even in Central Valley of uh, California, beyond levels by which the, they, the, these these resources replenish. The, as you have to go farther and farther down, the quality of the water degrades, and finally you run out of water as well. About half our wetlands are gone, and I. 
We can talk about the benefits of wetlands, but they are many, as we, have, we were discovering. Uh, we mentioned the melting uh, uh, glaciers, and just out here in the Gulf of Mexico, you see that you have a, a, a uh, from, from the over um, entry of, of nutrients from runoff from agro, agrochemicals and other industrial chemicals, we have a dead zone where f- about the size of the state of Massachusetts, where no fish, there's no oxygen, and uh, the fish, even the fish can't even live. Uh, the oil spill just adds to the, uh, uh, to the, to the nature of this uh, problem. The second part, however, is a uh, is a political problem, is that the um, that the world is pol- increasingly polarizing into uh, water haves and have-nots, uh, because water is not evenly distributed around the world, and of course the population disparities add to that. Uh, there is about one-third of the world population lives in dry lands that have only 8% of the world's water, and in those very much the population is growing very rapidly. A freshwater scarcity is a chief reason why 3.5 billion people are going to be living in countries that do not have enough water to be able to feed themselves in the next uh, 15 to 20 years. And that will probably include uh, India, Pakistan, and possibly even China. Uh, that will change entirely the, the, the uh, nature of our uh, uh, agricultural trade markets uh, and the volatility of food prices. And as you know, countries that uh, can't feed themselves tend to be unstable and become failed states, which is one of the great dangers here. Um, the import-dependent Middle East, already 50% of the um, inputs, 50% of its uh, food imports, imports 50% of its food, is going to probably uh, rise to about 70% uh, due to population pressures there. Uh, countries like Saudi Arabia have already been leasing cropland uh, in places like Ethiopia and the Sudan on the Nile, which by itself is already overdrawn. Uh, to try to f- secure their uh, food, s- food supplies. Um, Israel gets two-thirds of its water uh, supply, actually, from lands won in the Six-Day War, uh, one-third from the, uh, from the West Bank Aquifer uh, and one-third uh, from the, uh, up on the Golan from the Jordan River. And, of course, in the West Bank Aquifer, they share it in a, a very skimpy, skimpy one-to-four sharing ratio with the Palestinians. Uh, that makes water one of the underlying issues of the Middle East and has been one of the tracks that has uh, been negotiated in, in all of the um, discussions that have gone on to date. As mentioned, there are a billion people who lack uh, access to safe drinking water and two and a half billion without sanitation, which presents a health risk, not just to those people, but to everyone if we don't solve that. Um, also, the dislocations from water shocks like the floods and mudslides and droughts that, um, that we were talking about that are exacerbated by um, climate change have already driven millions of people from their homes and their livelihoods in India, Bangladesh, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. And they're expected to create something like 150 million what we call climate migrants. I call them water migrants uh, or refugees within a decade. Um, it, China, China's fate is China has one-fifth the amount of water that we do uh, in the United States on a per capita basis, much of it terribly polluted. If they are to become a superpower, uh, they have very enormous uh, water um, scarcity problems and quality problems uh, to be able to overcome. I, I consider it to be one of their major Achilles heel, and I think they recognize that uh, themselves. Um, there are upriver states like Turkey, which control the headwaters of the Euphrates and Tigris and, uh, and in fact, uh, are, are managed without agreement, 
uh, and China, by the way, on the Tibetan plateau, controls the rivers, uh, headwaters of the rivers of virtually all of Asia's great rivers as well. They have not signed on, uh, in fact, uh, veto, uh, vote against the Water Convention of the UN, which said that upriver states should behave in ways that don't harm downriver states. And lastly, I, I just want to say, um, I, uh, we've got to question and answer on this, even world business leaders are recognizing uh, this as a, as, a, as a threat to business. Uh, at Davos, at the World Economic Forum, uh, they, they issued a report that said, um, uh, that talked about the food bubbles and, and such that we're building, in, in, as we've discussed, in India and Pakistan and elsewhere. But they're really worried about running out of water um, if, in their transnational supply chains because they have very complicated supply chains. And if it's disrupted in one portion because uh, – one part because there's not enough water, uh, that's a problem for them. They're worried about anti-market backlashes. Um, that have that are starting to come as they are perceived to be competing with locals uh, for, for for increasingly scarce water resources. Um, Coca Cola lost its license in India for a while because of that uh, for that reason. And frankly, to meet the world food crisis, uh, we're going to have to have a very robust trading system in this world. And if uh, there is a backlash against uh, uh, market economies who are perceived as taking advantage of uh, water resources that through market, quote, marketization of water, privatization of, of water, and there's a very strong uh, movement of people uh, of that, of that, with that point of view, um, it, it, it can pose even a threat to uh, you know, the free world trading system uh, as well. Um, I, will, I, have a long, I have much more to talk about, but we are running out of time for this portion of the show. So um, I'll just say that we really have two, uh, two choices, and then we'll go from there. The two choices are, one, and this is the right choice, the best choice, is to use our existing water resources in a much more productive way. And there, as I mentioned before, there is a lot of inefficiency in the way we use water. It has been highly politically subsidized uh, with a lot of market distortions in it. Uh, and it also means making sure that we preserve enough uh, for the ecosystems first and foremost so that they can uh, give to all of us that benefit that they, that they provide. Uh, that's a hard choice to make because it requires uh, uh, attacking many political, uh, politically sacred, uh, sacred cows, political sacred cows, and very few countries have gone down that route, although Australia has done so and some others have. Uh, the second choice is to try to buy time uh, by doing for, for the day that some great new uh, wonder, uh, silver bullet technology equivalent of the giant dams of the 20th century uh, come about. Um, and some people talk about uh, desalination, uh, maybe genetically modified food or something like that. And the way you buy time is you just continue to pump groundwater deeper and deeper, or you build um, aqueducts across countries, interlinking your rivers that you do have so that you bring a little bit of water from one area that you have seem to have a surplus to where you um, ha have a shortfall. China, which is the, probably the greatest water-moving civilization in world history, and certainly is uh, the world leader today, uh, even beyond us, uh, has this South to North project going, which is probably the largest water, uh, not only the largest water uh, infrastructure project on Earth, probably the largest infrastructure project period on Earth, to pump water over the mountains, under the Yellow River, from the Yangtze region uh, to the northern, to its dry northern regions. Uh, most environmentalists considered it an abomination, uh, and many engineers wonder whether it actually um, will have devastating side effects, uh, but, but they feel severe enough that that's what they need to do. So on that, I'll just open it up to questions, and we can get to the, the good, good stuff after that.
have a question. Oh, students have a question? Yeah. Go right. <laughs> you can go first. Good senior. My name is Alex Harvey, and I'm a senior at Girl in High School. My question is, what role has the scarcity of water in the Jordan Basin played in the peace process in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And what solutions can be implemented to ensure that there will be enough water for everyone in the generation? Good, good question. Uh, the Jordan River ran out of uh, water for, for, uh, for sufficiency for all of its people, defined by being able to uh, produce the food necessary in the 1960s or 70s, I think, uh, even 60s probably. Um, so uh, uh, they've, they've lived with the scarcity for a very long time. Um, it played a role in the 1967 war, in triggering the 67 war, when um, Israel was uh, uh, for, for tr- tried to... Um, uh, uh, well, when they built a, an, um, uh, it wasn't a diversion, it was a, but they were going to bring water into the water carrier, their aqueducts, their share of the water that had been agreed that they should have, and were uh, attacked actually by the, um, some of the Arab states uh, for doing that. Israel responded with, with, with bombing um, back and forth and went on for two years. And Ariel Sharon has said it was one of the triggers of the 67 war, which I mentioned uh, Israel had um, uh, won uh, the territories that gave them, suddenly gave them uh, two-thirds of their current water supply. Um, but the interesting thing is that, that even with all of the animosity that has existed between the Palestinians and the Israelis and, and uh, the Jordanians until the peace treaty and the Israelis, uh, there was continued cooperation, actually, among the uh, water experts. Even during the Intifada, the uh, water uh, engineers on both sides continued to meet. Uh, so there's an element here that, uh, that, that sees that maybe water is something that we need to cooperate on. Today, there's a group, uh, Friends of the Earth, actually, is sponsoring um, uh, in that region where they have a peace park based around uh, the issue of trying to share water at the uh, convergence of where the Jordan River uh, meets the, um, the Yarmouk River. Um, but the answer to your question is this. Israel has now building... Um, five large desalination plants uh, along the coast uh, that is going to increase its water supply by 50 percent. It knows that it is going, it cannot, it it has promised the Palestinians enough water for at least for drinking purposes, and the population of the Palestinians is continuing to grow. So it knows that even even without peace, it's, it's going to have to start to give back more water from the West Bank to Israel. But if there's going to be a peace treaty, it, it certainly knows that it's going to have to give back by far the lion's share of that water. And uh, you can't manufacture water in the Jordan uh, Basin, but you can uh, substitute for it. Um, and, and the desal it certainly would be well, well worth the price for everybody to pay, even if we had to subsidize uh, some of the cost of it. It's, not, it's far, far, far better than, than, than what would war would look like. Uh, we can go into Syria if you want, but uh, that's, a, that's a separate question. I think I read an article where someone proposed having reservoirs of conversion to from non-potable water, um, sewage, or just uh, like you said, from desalinization, like submarines do other things. And if you had enough of those around, it might help. Not just converting regular water to our use. And is that possible? Is that something that people are thinking about? And would you recommend that technology over just no, they're actually doing it in many places. Uh, we are um, sometimes are in Israel, in fact, to take an example there, uh, is actually uh, 
recycling uh, uh, water that comes out of uh, from the industry or the toilets or whatever, but not not spending so much money to to to, in, to increase its um, uh, its purity to, to potable levels, and is, has a two separate pipeline systems, and that water then goes down uh, to the uh, to some of the farms, let's say in the Negev. Um, and you can use water that is not potable for for agriculture. This is being done in um, in actually even in the United States in many places. It's a, it is one of the creative and positive um, uh, technologies uh, uh, available. Whether it can be scaled up enough uh, to meet everybody's needs, I I, I, I doubt uh, at the current time. But but it is one of the bag of of solutions that uh, uh, that, that we can work on. Ben, we'll come back to Ben. Uh, I've got some friends that just returned from two weeks visiting with uh, friends in the West Bank, and uh, they couldn't flush their commode for two weeks or take a shower for two weeks because Israel had cut off their water. And just across the fence, it was incredibly offensive to them. They were running open sprinklers in the set on the settlers, yeah. And it's creating enormous anger among the housewives and the oh, yeah. elderly children. But the question was. Uh, I've got a lot of friends in Cambodia, and they're just horrified about uh, what China's doing along the Mekong. Could you comment on that? Please? Yeah, that, that's going to be a bigger and bigger issue. I mean, right now the Mekong is there's some I think there's some drought issues, and people are very are blaming China for it. From what I read um, and, and hear, that probably China is not actually to blame yet, but, but they will be because China. Look, China is building dams not just in China at an enormous rate. We have forty five thousand giant dams around the world. Half of them are in China, and they are build. They continually are building because they are so thirsty for energy purposes. So hydropower dams in particular they're building. They're actually building them elsewhere in the world as well and, 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 and such. Um, so uh, it is very likely, and they are starting, and they are building some on the Mekong, uh, that the day is going to come when China is going to have to decide uh, whether it's going to participate cooperatively uh, with its neighbors downstream or it's going to put itself uh, interests first. Because right now they are not part of the Mekong uh, commission. Not co- they, they do send a delegate, as I understand, to listen in. Um, but they uh, will begin to affect the, both the, the flow amounts and the quality of the flow and the seasonality of the flow. And that will affect life in a dramatic way on the Mekong. And we will, that will become a crisis, I almost guarantee you, uh, in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. Yeah, uh, if I can focus on the United States uh, for a moment and our general situation here, uh, the question being, here in the United States, the water rights and the administration of our water policies uh, are down at the state level and within the state at the water district level. Now, about six years ago, I tried to organize a national water conference in Washington. And the response was, what problem? Or, it's not us, it's him. <laughs> the question is, what is going to be the tipping point before we have a national policy, a national uh, governmental group, regulatory group, that has the authority to address this problem on a national basis, as opposed to leaving it to right. the local district? Right. 
Well, that, of course, is the, that's the, the, the million-dollar question, of course. Um, look, it, you know, timing is everything, as we all have learned through, through life. Um, uh, there is greater awareness is, is growing. As I mentioned, at least at the State Department, they recognize it, and they say they're talking to the other agencies about it. But we're still far away from that day, of that, uh, that issue that is there. Look, I, I argue in this book, and I will continue to argue going forth, forward from now on, that we are, in the United States, we are a water-rich country. We have uh, 8% of the world's uh, available fresh water, only 4% of its population. Uh, we have regions of, of dryness, as we all know, but we also have great extravagance uh, that we could easily uh, improve the productivity of our existing water enormously. And in fact, in the first three quarters of this century, we consumed uh, water at a rate of three times faster than population growth. Uh, in part because we subsidize water uh, freely for, for, for certain uses, and they don't use it uh, very, didn't use it very efficiently. The, when the Clean Water Act came in, however, in 1975, uh, and water began to grow scarce for a few other things, the cost of cleaning that water suddenly began a factor in to certain people's calculations. Um, and that uh, led to a situation where water use in the United States has actually flatlined where our, where our population has continued to grow uh, by 30% and the GDP continued to grow. So there has been an increase in our productivity uh, already. The processes, uh, natural market forces are beginning to operate where we've put in artificial regulations um, rather than an actual thought through national policy or even a, a, a state policy, which could make it a far more effective. Australia has completely revised its water uh, rights a situation because they realized their Murray Darling system was losing water. Uh, they um, actually lost 70% of their flow in the Murray Darling uh, and, and did not and ended up because of a water rights, um, uh, they now actually trade water rights and have a market-based system where they trade water rights over a mobile telephone system, uh, actually are able to hold their production levels at the same level that they were uh, before this drought um, took place. So there is an enormous opportunity for the United States to, to leverage our advantage, our, our competitive advantage in water, to recognize it first and foremost as an economic uh, resource and then as something that we can then produce the food, uh, much of the food, many of the industrial goods, and even some of the energy-intensive goods that other parts of the world will not be able to produce because they don't have adequate water resources to do that. If you begin to look at water as, 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 as oil, <laughs> you know, it, a mental change has to take place, uh, we could improve our own growth rate and, as I say, improve our, our status in the world. I don't know what's going to make it quite happen. There's no Al Gore of water yet to quite wake us up. But, but, but um, I did come across a foundation that is actually addressing this question uh, for the first time. Uh, the Johnson Foundation is starting uh, some initiative on this. Um, as as um, a, con a convergence of forces come together, the Clinton uh, people come with it uh, at the State Department. Um, I think we will, and as some of these water crises begin to come up uh, more and more I th in the world, I think the dots will start to get connected. Um, but I don't know when. Tom, did you have a question? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Is uh, water desalinization uh, net positive for given uh, its energy use? The of yeah, and it's intense energy and, and, and fossil fuel burning, of course, as well at the current time. Um, they, once they get it, if they get it to solar or, diesel or, or wind, I think it becomes a, you know, even more attractive. Um, but, but the answer to right now is that the, uh, the, the amount of, of um, 
while there have been great improvements in membrane technology and in, and in the cost structures have come down, um, it still is not the, the most economic uh, way to, pr- to produce the water. Uh, but if you need it, if you don't have it for basic things like the highest uses, like drinking, you will do it because you have to do it, uh, and you'll subsidize it by whatever means you do because you know, without, without water for seven or eight days, you, you die, so no choice. Um, but the problem for solving the world water crisis uh, outside of the um, uh, is that is that the amount of built the built-in base. Even if tomorrow they came up with the great breakthrough that that suddenly made it worthwhile uh, and, and, and a net plus, um, the, the 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 scalability problem is is enormous to get enough out there. Israel's program is going to take uh, ten years to build out, and, and you know we don't have ten years uh, in many parts of the world, and we don't, certainly don't have twenty and thirty and forty to build out at that at that at that uh, scale. So I don't think the timing. I don't think we can rely on the timing of a, of a, of a silver bullet technology, uh, and certainly not for things like agriculture, which is a low value. Two uh, uh, related but separate questions, and that is, number one, you had mentioned about privatization efforts. Can you comment on the status of various efforts here in the United States, but also the world? And then the second is, overall, your perception or your, your, your belief is to... Where does the market, is, can the market be used to help address this? Yeah. Um, well, the privatization, first of all, I, I think is a bit of a red herring. I, I'm not of the school that, that gets upset when, uh, when countries make um, contracts with, uh, with, with, inter- with, with uh, corporations, private corporations, to provide uh, water resources. The water is not being owned by the corporation. Uh, it's being they're providing the delivery mechanisms and the, and the infrastructures and, and such. Uh, so it's, it really is a matter, and there's been a terrible cases like in Bolivia where the prices after the privatization went, went up so drastically uh, that the, the people couldn't afford uh, water uh, to, to drink uh, for, for, for basic uh, survival purposes. And that led to demonstrations, a couple of deaths, and um, and a fall of a government, um, so so it's a very explosive issue, but it's but it's really a function of of, of poor governance more than it is of, of anything bad about um, uh, uh, privatizing. We're not giving the water, we're not selling the actual water resources uh, to to, to uh, that we that we rely on for our our basic uh, uh, water needs. Uh, the second answer is that I am a very strong proponent of uh, mark, of mo- using market forces uh, to try to um, uh, improve the efficiency of of our of our water uh, usage. Um, I think we need to deregulate strongly the, um, uh, the, the those sectors that have been heavily politically subsidized, which largely is, is agribusinesses uh, who pay sometimes fifteen to twenty times less than you, we do in some of the cities uh, for, for water uses. California, I think agribusiness gets, uh, agri- agriculture use, gets eight, uses 80% of the water, produces 3% of the GDP. Well, you need food. We have to have food, and you're going to have to subsidize food at some level because food is never going to be competitive with semiconductors, um, and you can't eat semiconductors. But, um, but, but nevertheless, we can get the balance a lot, a lot better. And, and, and talking about the water rights problem, um, you know, very often it's the it's the grandfathered water users that are less efficient than those who are the uh, the second water you get the second water rights um, because they have less incentive under the very perverse water laws that we have. They're perverse for today. They made sense a hundred years ago, perhaps. Um, and so we will have to address some of those. I think tiered pricing is part of it to encourage uh, efficiency. That seems to be workable, working. That is, low volume users 
pay low amounts, and the more you use, uh, the more you pay. Um, there's a whole host of mechanisms, but they all have to be focused and accept the fact that there has to be a certain allocation, minimum allocation of water that's going to go to the, the, the ecosystem itself to preserve the, the health of the ecosystem. Because if that collapses, then there's not water for agriculture, there's not water for industry or for, for, for drinking purposes. And where we see progress being made, let's say on the Klamath River in, in, in Oregon uh, and in California uh, or in the Great Lakes, uh, you, what you do see is, is these varied stakeholder groups coming together, recognizing they have to have water for the ecosystem, and then negotiating among themselves how they're going to divide what's left over. That's, that's the model of, of how it, it can work and, and hopefully will work. Thank you. Yes, Thank you. Um, my name is Irene Clover. I'm a professor at the University of North Texas in Denton, and we drink extremely recycled water, our own uh, water treatment water, uh, which is very good quality. <laughs> Uh, and I'm the director of Water and Culture pro Project, and um, I have two questions for you. Actually, one following up on the, the gentleman here in front, um, uh, with the relationship between uh, local policy and uh, national and international policy. I think a nice example is the European. I'm just originally uh, the European uh, Union uh, Water Framework Director. So you get a kind of policy where, say, the regulations around the river, like the Danube or the Rhine, override a lot of even national legislation. And so you get a, a regulation for the health of the river based upon what the river needs beyond that. Uh, right. There might be a kind of example of what you can look for, what, what the gentleman asked for, the national policy in terms of... Um, well, it, it's basically Wesley Powell's idea that we need... Uh, Instead of states, we should have uh, river basins. State, uh, instead of Colorado and so forth. Um, my question is like, uh, it, it pertains also to the question about the Cambodia. Uh, how can we create a mentality in which actually uh, people support uh, legislation like that? And I'm thinking specifically about, say, uh, China, where uh, uh, the Um, well, of course, this is what my friends at the uh, World Bank uh, wrestle with all the time, and they're always looking for some kind of a lever that, that gives reasons for, for negotiating. The two levers that there usually are is that, um, that there's, a, that there's a, uh, a positive some reason uh, to cooperate, that they can get more resources out of the river by cooperating, uh, or, the, uh, the down, or the downstream state has another advantage, like Egypt, for example, is an is a anomaly of history. And downriver states, almost always throughout history, you'll see power migrates upriver, uh, and, and it has certainly in Mesopotamia through the current time to, to Turkey. Um, and today you see on the, on the Nile, uh, for example, I, I'm very fearful for Egypt as well, um, because it has, it has consumed the, the largest volume uh, by far of that river and provides almost none of the water of the Nile. Eighty-five percent of it comes from the Blue Nile um, in, in Ethiopia, one of the poorest countries on the earth. 
Uh, some of it comes from the Sudan. These countries have a right to the water and to develop as well, but there just is not that much water with the given population growths that are coming in there. So they're struggling right now as we speak. Uh, they expected by December to have an agreement of the Nile Basin uh, 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 on the Nile Basin, but Egypt is still holding out. Now, Egypt has always had the military threat advantage. When you look back at history, and I argue in this book, Sadat understood this when he made peace with Israel. He used the diplomatic leverage he got from that. And he even said at the time, the only things that can take Egypt to war again are the waters of the Nile. And, um, and he even more overtly threatened Ethiopia uh, if it diverted the water uh, in another quote. So um, that one, you know, it, it, it's hard to see where there's going to be a, a positive sum, but they seem to be saying, well, it's better than a war, you know? Um, and, but on the other hand, Turkey, they, they can't find the lever to, to move Turkey on, on the Euphrates and Tigris, and, and Iraq has lost 90% of the water that it had because it was in, in 1960, it was in Egypt's position. It got almost all the water. Then they built all the dams. Syria started to, to get it. There was almost a war there. And then now Turkey's built it, and so that's not happening. Uh, China, you know, doesn't seem to have any, any constraints if it doesn't want them. So they're always looking for that, but we don't, we don't see what they are. Um, so, uh, and I must say, on the Indus, I didn't mention one of the, re- many of my friends at the World Bank believe, and some people believe, that you have to go back and renegotiate the Indus uh, Treaty now. And Indus Treaty 2 is required for the new technologies that have developed uh, on the river, but they are afraid to push it because um, they think India wants to walk away from that treaty. They're the upriver riparian and um, uh, upriver state and they don't necessarily see a reason to cooperate with Pakistan anymore. Uh, so that, these are frightening. That's a frightening set of uh, issues. The only on the other side is that war is a bad thing. I mean, a terrible thing. Uh, it kind of follows up on these, but on a local level here, uh, urban sprawl, as we see this city is continually moves north, or not the city, but there are small water districts that are formed all over this area. And there really isn't the water so I'm kind of wondering at strategies specifically for how do you address, I mean, we talk about sustainability and concentrating, but, but very often, very rarely is it talked about in terms of water. Well, I mean, that is the issue, except for obviously it is. Well, as this gentleman, as this gentleman mentioned, it's, it's the other guy, and, and there is there is some uh, there there's some efforts at uh, in some states there seem to be effort some effort at some kind of state planning, but it's still very uh, as far as I can tell very uh, hit and miss. It's probably my next book. I'll have to I'll have to tackle that one in my next book. I know you had your hand up. That'll be the last question. Go ahead. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Naomi Von and I'm also a professor at the University of North Texas. <laughs> uh, I run a uh, I'm a director of the concentration. in the Sierra Madre Mountains, and I work with four uh, farmers up there who farm fish, trout, which is not endemic to Mexico at all. And what I am trying to do is help them use their water wisely and create recirculating systems so we don't use the water because they are competing against Mexico City. 20% of the corral to get the watershed actually supplies the city of Mexico with drinking water. Also, it's a conservation area. So there's issues of conservation. And my question to you, since you sort of focus on sort of Asia and other parts of the world, you don't, I've not heard, and I, I, I will read your book, but I haven't read it yet, South America and Mexico, particularly areas that I'm dealing with in the mountains right now, these are poor farmers. I'm trying to help them utilize their water resources. They're fighting against their own state. 
Right. Um, well, it's true that I, most of the book does not cover that, that region uh, of the world. I have come across uh, some, some uh, and South America, by the way, is a, in general is water, uh, very water-rich, although that is a, it belies the fact that there are very, there are very arid regions within uh, that, um, and, and water everywhere underlines that water locally has to, is, a, is a local phenomenon. It has to be managed in its own, uh, each situation has its own set of conditions that have to be taken into account. I don't know that I, I, I can answer that. I can say this, that there is a bit of a movement towards, um, generally, uh, towards wanting to pay for e- ecosystem services, um, and this is uh, – I do, do discuss that in the book. It's an important trend. Uh, it's actually taking hold throughout South America uh, as well um, as, as in the United States. Um, and, and, some, and, for example, even growing uh, – raising forests in, one, in, the nor- in, in mountainous areas um, helps to conserve water there. And there is a, a, an effort afoot – to try to want to have payments even for those who do that. I don't know if that applies in, in that case. Um, uh, but um, uh, you, you'll have a sympathetic ear, I can tell you that, at some of the multilaterals uh, in, in Washington if you want to want to get a few voices on your side for, for, for to think of anything along those lines. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, thank, you. thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.